Hello and welcome. I am your host, Kirsty, and this is Leadership Odysseys. We are embarking on a mission to bridge the gap between aspiration and reality, offering a raw and unfiltered exploration of the behind-the-scenes challenges that shape true leadership. Join us as we share stories of resilience, turning points, and authentic human experiences that remind us Greatness is a product of the entire odyssey, not just the destination. Welcome everyone to another exciting episode of Leadership Odysseys. I'm your host Kirsty, and today we're embarking on a fascinating journey through the ever-evolving world of retail. Our theme for today is navigating the future of retail. And we have a remarkable guest who's at the forefront of this dynamic landscape. Simon Molnar's innovative vision is transforming the way retailers operate in a rapidly changing environment. As the founder of Flagship, a pioneering tech company, Simon is reshaping the retail experience, bridging the gap between the physical and digital realms. But before we dive into this enlightening conversation, let me set the stage. The retail industry is undergoing a profound transformation, one where traditional brick-and-mortar stores meet cutting-edge technology. It's a journey filled with challenges and opportunities where data-driven insights hold the key to success. Simon Molnar is no stranger to this journey. His career spans the intersection of technology and retail making him a driving force in this new era. From his early experiences in engineering to his role as CEO of Ice Jewelry and his significant contributions at Afterpay in both the data and marketing teams, Simon's Odyssey is a testament to innovation, adaptability and a passion for creating a brighter future for retailers. So whether you're a retail enthusiast an entrepreneur navigating the business landscape or simply curious about the future of shopping, this episode is for you. Get ready to explore the trends, challenges and exciting possibilities that lie ahead. Before we bring Simon into the conversation, remember to hit that subscribe button so that you never miss an inspiring episode. And if you enjoy today's conversation, don't forget to leave a review because your feedback fuels our odyssey. All right, without further ado, let's dive into navigating the future of retail with the visionary founder of Flagship, Simon Molnar. Welcome, Simon, to Leadership Odysseys. Thanks for having me. What what an introduction. I think it's a a pretty special story that you've got there um, indeed and looking forward to exploring that today. Thank you. Excited to be here. Yeah. And I I have to say, so I've now known you for probably the best part of four to five years. Um, You know, it has been an absolute privilege to watch you go on that journey and see the evolution of, you know, your journey from ice jewelry to Afterpay and now where you stand today is that founder of Flagship. But before we do dive into your journey, 
Today's pretty special. It's the first day I have come and actually seen this new office. Um, you know, really, it has been a journey to get here from starting off in, in the basement of your parents' house and <laughs> a concept that was built around a dining table at home with some great family discussions. But what does this milestone mean for you being in this incredible new headquarters? Yeah, it's pretty surreal. Spent the last couple of years in in the parents' basement. Feels like that's where startups are meant to start. Hundred percent. And it feels like we're growing up, and it's a big milestone to be able to say we have an office, we have a team, we're growing, we need the space, we need the meeting room. It shows that we're we're starting to mature as a business. So for me, it's definitely a pinch myself moment. I remember back at Afterpay, every new office was a new milestone and this is the next milestone. Fantastic and a beautiful space that it is. I can feel the energy. The ambience is amazing. I do have to say I love the characters. They have made their way here. Um, I hope they find a very special place (laughs) to actually land. And let's actually tell the audience what these characters actually are that you've brought along into this new office space. Yeah, so it was pretty funny. Um, One of the early Christmas parties that we had, we were all sitting around having having a beer and we had this decision that everyone that joined would pick a Nintendo character or a yeah, Nintendo character that would represent them and that would be their character at the company and everyone would pick a character, we'd get them a plush toy and everyone's plush toy would sit on their table and now we have this, this shelf of all these plush toys <laughs> that is representative of everyone in the team and we'll see how long we can kind of keep this, this uh, I guess, tradition going for. There's a good thing that there's a lot of Nintendo characters but it does, it, it gives a bit of colour to the office, it creates a bit of culture. Um, obviously, you want to have structures in business, but you also want to be um, as laid back and as easygoing as possible. And you want to create an environment for people to be able to be themselves. And there's no better way than being yourself than through video games and plush toys. <laughs> Love that. Yeah. What plush toy are you? I was I was given Mario. Mario. <laughs> because he was just, I guess, the OG. Um, but, um, yeah, everyone's kind of picked a character that, that represents them in, in some kind of capacity. Oh, that is absolutely fantastic. Well, let's dive into your journey and really take us on this journey for who is Simon Molnar? Where where did all of this begin to be able to land in the retail technology space? Yeah, I had a, I guess, a pretty, in hindsight, a pretty unique journey. Parents had a, a jewellery store in Sydney CBD for over 30 years. So I was brought up on on jewellery and on retail. I spent a lot of time in their stores. I would sell Pandora, I would man the Pandora box because I saw that everyone came in wanting Pandora. So I would just stand there selling Pandora knowing that it would sell sell itself. And there was definitely that, I guess, addiction or craving of closing a sale. I'd spent a lot of weekends in the store and I, I guess it was both jewelry and retail were in my blood. I was in year 11 or year 12 and I actually started selling some jewellery to my math teacher at the time. <laughs> that is dedication. Yeah. <laughs> I'd come to class five minutes early. She'd have a purchase order for me. I would go home, give it to my parents. They would fulfil it. I'd bring 
bring it back to school or we'd meet at Westfield and exchange products. And there was a little bit of a side hustle for both of us. And at the same time, I was selling Pandora on eBay. So I'd say the thing for me is I've always seen opportunity and what can be done. I, I wasn't always the most commercial. It was more, there's an opportunity here. Let's just do it and figure everything out later. So that's kind of what happened. And then I was going into my final year of school and my parents wanted me to focus on my studies. So I handed the keys of the eBay business over to my brother. And then when I finished school, I was really fortunate that a close kind of family friend of ours had a company, a software company, and gave me an opportunity to work there. So I decided to take a gap year, really focus on on working. And I didn't realize at the time, so I was working as a software engineer straight out of school. I was 17. Everyone would go to the pub and someone would have to be my legal guardian. <laughs> <laughs> and we, I, I didn't realize at the time that the caliber of people that I was working alongside were some of the brightest minds that still to this day I've ever worked with. I think that's a, don't mind me jumping in, a really interesting point. You sometimes don't actually realize what's in front of you at that particular point in time until years later where you realize the pure value of that mentorship that you actually had at that stage. 100%. I read a book a while ago and it kind of made a made a point of making a, I guess, a mental boardroom of the people that have been the most influential in your life. And I've kind of done that. And there are a lot of people in the journey that that kind of sit around that table. And at the time, the, the engineers that I was working with, most of them went on to become CTOs at very successful companies. And these were the people that I was working one-on-one with, that I was learning from. Mm-hmm. And they really kind of shaped the way that I approached engineering, approached tech, approached business. And naively, I mean, being a young kid, I was kind of chasing the dollars. I wanted the salary. I mean, I wasn't, I think I was on 20 grand a year when I started, (laughs) not much, (laughs) but it was still, I mean, to me, that was a lot of money. And I, for a window of time, I just wanted to get as big a salary as I could get. And then there was kind of this moment where I realized that chasing the money was turning me into someone that I didn't want to be. Mm -hmm. And I flipped my mindset to really focus on knowledge over money. And I kind of knew that if I did things right and if I knew what I was doing and if I, and if I, I guess, trusted the process that everything else would fall into place. And from then on, I really made sure that every opportunity I took, it wasn't so much about what I guess I was earning. It was about what skill set I was about to pick up and who I was going to learn that from. And I could kind of see the little, all the skill sets that I needed in order to build a business. And I knew which skill sets I had and which skill sets I didn't. So everything for me was trying to find who is it that I'm going to learn that next skill set from. So I finished up at that company as a software engineer. I decided that I didn't want to be kind of a hardcore software engineer writing code day in, day out. I liked having the the knowledge and being able to speak the language, but I didn't want it to be my day-to-day job. And at the same time, my brother had decided to take that jewelry eBay business and bring it into a standalone website. And 
I had no econ background and I said, again, this is an opportunity to learn a new skill set. I had to learn warehousing. I had to learn fulfillment. I had to learn e-com. I had to learn CMS. I had to learn email. Um, I had to learn SEO, all these things that I kind of had to learn and teach myself along the way. And it's, I guess, in again, it comes back to that hindsight where you, you realize what the opportunities that you had and... I, again, I didn't realize it at the time because he was my brother, but working with Nick was working with one of kind of the greatest minds and the opportunity to learn a lot of the way that he approached things, the way that he thought about things and really apply that to a lot of what what I was doing. So um, I would say that you're both very much visionary <laughs> Visionary leaders that like to take a bit of a risk. And would I be right in saying that? Yeah, I, I would say I, I'm more the doer. So when we were working together, he would kind of come to me. He would say, we need a solve for this or this is the problem. And we'd have a bit of a discussion and I'd come with a solution and he'd say, great, go and do it. So, and that was kind of the way we worked. I mean, he said, we don't have deep pockets. We don't have crazy investors. We can't just burn through money. We need to get free sales. We need a rank on Google. And we can't afford an SEO agency, so you need to learn SEO. How to do it yourself. <laughs> so just for a week, I sat there watching videos, teaching myself, trying different things, seeing what worked. Um, it's funny, being a software engineer, it's very iterative. You build, you test, you get bugs, you fix and improve, and you keep working towards the next thing. And that's kind of the way that that I work. It's we I test something, even from an SEO perspective, I test something see what works. If it works, I stay on it. If it doesn't work, I move on to something else and see what does work. Do so, you, Do you take your learnings with that and move very quickly? Into, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I always try and move quickly. I don't sit on things for too long. I guess a big thing for me is being agile and adaptable and not holding on to something if it's not working and really kind of doubling down on something if it is working. So, yeah, with, with Nick, we, we grew ice to become Australia's largest pure play jewellery retailer Things were going really well um, and then Nick had this light bulb moment to allow our customers to pay for their orders over time. He started working on on building Afterpay and he he went and kind of started focusing on that and, and left me. He to, got a bit busy, let's say. <laughs> yeah. And so now he, he I guess he, he was kind of preparing me for that and where I'd always had this safety net to run things past, now I had to step into the big shoes and make the decisions and run everything myself. So it was kind of forced on me, but it it made me realize the value of making decisions, owning your decisions, committing to decisions, and also showed me kind of how to empower people around you in order to help step up, but also to take things off your plate. Definitely. And I'd say within that, that whole ability, stepping out of your comfort zone and really being uh, taking control of those reins and, and riding that journey through influence of your team and having to make those key decisions is probably some of the, the hardest moments in the time, but the biggest growth that you've probably had uh, once again when you're actually looking back, it's being able to be true to yourself, learn about yourself by being extremely uncomfortable and facing that fear. 100%. I would say right now I enjoy public speaking. The first few times I got up to public speak, I, I bombed. I forgot what I was going to say. I messed it up. They could not have gone worse, but I didn't accept that that was it. And what I realized was 
no no athlete became good or great without a coach. No one just teaches themselves how to play tennis. No one teaches themselves how to play piano. Sure, people do, but everyone, I mean, majority of people need that coach and someone to teach them. So I said, I want to be good at public speaking. I know it's a skill set that I need and I'm going to go get coaching because I can't expect to be good at it just by doing it. And again, that was the mindset that I had with everything that, that, that I was doing. So when Afterpay was in like the very, very early days, I remember I'd go in a couple of days a week and help with a couple of data things. I had Fabio, who was director of sales, pulling me into like build reports and, and, and Mike Roth, who was the head of legal, pulling me in for a number of things. And I remember we were at the first online retailer awards and I had Anthony, Mike, Fabio corner me, trying to convince me to come over to Afterpay. And I think this was in probably seven or eight people. And I was conscious that I'd gone and, and joined Nick at Ice and I was conscious about going and kind of just following him again to Afterpay. So I wanted a little bit of time just to myself. Mm. Ice at the time... I I built and created a lot of tech in order to automate as much as we could. Nick always used to joke, if you want a manual repetitive task automated, get Simon to do it because I hate manual repetitive tasks. So I'd managed to um, automate ICE to the point where we needed one and a half people a week, including myself. So that was half a person a week basically of what I needed to do. So I'm going to jump in there. This is Australia's leading jewellery store online from a revenue perspective and we had one and a half people one operating half. this business yeah we had myself part-time i had my warehouse manager part-time and i had my mum part-time doing customer service everything else was entirely automated we could i had our product upload automated they would automatically get added to their right collections on the website those collections would automatically be optimized for seo the best performing products would automatically rise to the top orders would automatically be sent to suppliers so the only thing that, and we also had um, an automated digital marketing agency that we worked with. So all we needed was really fulfillment and customer service because at the time there wasn't there wasn't really any automation that could be built around that. So I essentially built myself out of a job, <laughs> which is pretty remarkable. And I would say that there's a playbook that goes into that to be able to help a lot more startups as they face that evolution of really, you know, being able to um, drive that omni-channel strategy. Yeah. One of the best things that that was said to me was by Wayne Baskin, who was the CTO to IC at Booktopia and he's currently the CTO and co-founder of Superhero. And one of the things he said to me was, if you can define rules, you can automate. So everything that I tried to do was I tried to kind of extract out of my head what are the steps that I'm taking in order to do this and therefore how can I build tech around that to do what's in my head basically. So this was, I'd say this was 2015 now. Um, I think after I had just listed on, on the ASX and I didn't have a huge amount to do from a nice perspective and I wasn't ready yet to fully commit to, to Afterpay. So an opportunity came up at a, at a small startup and to, and the opportunity was to work in the digital marketing team at, at this small startup. And I had zero digital marketing experience, but digital marketing to me was the last piece of the puzzle that I needed in order to be able to kind of build my own business and understand everything end to end enough in order to kind of go out on my own. So, and 
the person that I was working directly with was the digital marketer who launched Netflix into Australia. And the, the strategy was so successful that it became Netflix's go-to-market strategy for any new market they entered. So to me, again, kind of chasing that knowledge, I thought this is perfect. The last piece of the puzzle and who better to learn it from than, than this guy. And what was even more fortunate was I was still running ICE at the same time and Afterpay was still in the in the relatively early stages. So I was able to take a lot of my learnings and go and apply it to both ICE and Afterpay. And again, iteratively test and learn, see what works, see what didn't. And I convinced Nick to let me run some ads for, for Afterpay and we were just seeing ridiculous results. We were getting like, I think in some cases, two cent cost per clicks, like $2 CPM, just ridiculous numbers. And I turned around to Nick and I said, there is something in this in this customer base. I think there were 100,000 customers at the time. So we're right at this early right stage. Right at the early stage. And I said to Nick, these 100,000 customers are really passionate about the product. There is an opportunity here with them. And, and Nick kind of had this light bulb moment to roll this out, which was help us help you where we went out to these 100,000 customers and, and said to them, which retailers do you want to offer Afterpay? Go and tell them that you want Afterpay. And that was kind of the floodgate moment. I think at that point, sales flipped from outbound to inbound and, and that was kind of that hockey stick moment. So everything for me has always been very data-driven. I use data to help the sales team work out which retailers they should prioritize next because I was able to work out which brands they were most likely to shop with so I could say to them, if we onboard this retailer, there's a very good likelihood, a very high likelihood that that retailer is going to have a great experience with us straight away. So Incredible learnings going through that whole journey. I think I could just have a whole entire episode for hours <laughs> on end, just like really diving in. I think from mentorship to chasing knowledge, I think is an extremely powerful part to extract from this that a lot of people do end up falling on that treadmill of life and chasing the salary and they're not fulfilling their heart therefore not adding the right value and I think that is a, a key thing that taking away from that that to the next generation of leaders coming through to be a bit more thoughtful in yeah. in how you're setting it up because it can really impact not only your life but the community around you as 100%, well. 100%. I think my my biggest focus is always working out what I enjoy doing and working out how to monetize off it. <laughs> because if I can do what I enjoy doing, then it doesn't feel like work. Turning up here every day doesn't feel like work. Turning up to Afterpay didn't feel like work. Turning up to ICE didn't feel like work. It just felt like I was being me and I was being paid to be me. I didn't feel like I was being someone else. I didn't feel like I was putting on a fake persona. And I guess that's also the way I live life. I I'm, I'm unapologetically me. I'm going to be me. Some people will like me for it. Some people won't. But what I will do is I will surround myself with people that accept me for me and I don't have to fake anything. I don't have to be someone I'm not. I don't, I don't feel pressured into doing things I don't want to do or being someone I'm not. And it means that I can just live my life naturally, both personally and professionally. I can definitely resonate with that. I think, you know, for myself especially, I reflect back on on my career and I always say to people that it's the fact that I, I've never felt like I've worked a day in my life yeah. and that is because I have worked really hard but I have loved 
every component of it. It is part of who I am as a person and hearing you say that is just incredible and and I think now I reflect on my time of knowing you, you can absolutely see that come <laughs> through and I think as much as you're saying, you know, you're unapologetically yourself, you also are extremely kind and have extremely good values which resonates through in all the businesses that you've touched over the years i appreciate it um yeah and also i've always kind of said i'll always take a personal ego hit for the greater good and at afterpay again now is probably think talking when there were maybe 20 to 30 people like in sydney at the time i saw where where there were gaps from a team perspective and the gaps were data and digital marketing that we didn't have anyone in house that could do either. So I said, okay, I'll step in and I'll do what needs to be done. So there was a period of time where I was kind of the data person and the digital marketing person. So I would dive into the data, work out the customer cohort that we're going to advertise to run the ad, design the ad, quantify the ad everything before, everything after. <laughs> and you were very good at it. I won't forget the times I came up to your desk or send you that Slack message, Simon. <laughs> Can you help me? I need data on all these shopping centres yeah. and all these individual retailers. Um, yeah, what a what an incredible stage. And so I am going to move that through So because Afterpay was an incredible journey. Then flagship has <laughs> hit the surface. So what was that transition from Afterpay to the initial concept of flagship being brought to the table? Yeah, so yeah, I guess fast forward a couple of years, I pretty much entirely removed myself out of ice. I kind of set it up so I didn't need to be that hands-on. And Afterpay now I think was at 1,000 staff and the, the block acquisition had just been announced. And what I very quickly realized when, when I was one of a thousand people that no one had the same level of impact that they once upon a time had. And I said, if I felt that when I was one of a thousand, what am I going to feel when I'm one of 13,000? And that was kind of the catalyst moment for me to start to explore new opportunities. I was fortunate that it coincided with, with the birth of my first daughter. And I took a bit of time off to, to be a dad. And it also coincided with COVID and, and lockdowns. So it meant that I had a couple months where I could just work on something new. I For a couple months before my, my daughter was born, I was doing some consulting work for Venroy, so just an omnichannel retailer here in Sydney. And through working with them, I started to see that there was an opportunity in offline retail, that there was so much tech and innovation in digital, but not a lot in brick and mortar. So the first couple of months after my daughter was born, it was basically just me trying to work out what can I do in the brick and mortar space? How can I find more tech? What can be done? And again, I, I was fortunate that I landed on a solution. And it's funny because that solution isn't the solution that we have today. And it took a pretty big pivot in order to get to today's solution. Can I just um, ask on that on that pivot, was there that moment in time that you knew you're about to shift that? Like what actually brought to you making that change in the business? Because it was quite significant. Yeah. So the first product that we landed on was uh, was centered around hardware. So we used hardware in order to track items in the store and we could convert that into analytics and insights to give retailers more, more visibility and more data in, in their store. But what we found was that hardware was challenging. There was a cost of good of it. It took time to deploy. It was very hard to do for some stores and it was actually 
the the VC fund that led the most recent round that looked at our cash flow forecast and basically said you're you're allocating way too much capital towards hardware and you're going to need to keep raising you're going to dilute yourself next to nothing and she turned around to me and she said take what I say with a grain of salt because you're in the business day to day and I turned back around to her and I said like I'm a big advocate of I don't know what I don't know you look at cash flow forecasts on a daily basis. This is your job. So if there's something that you're seeing in my forecast that is raising alarm bells, I'm going to I'm going to listen. So that was kind of the the catalyst moment where we decided to pivot. And I mean, it was terrifying. I had a team of seven people at the time. I had a wage bill, and for all intents and purposes, we were back to square one. And really, we had one shot to land. We landed. We keep going. We don't. We go belly up. And I had raised some money from friends, from family, and there was a material possibility that I was kind of toying with my, in my mind that, that this could all go pear-shaped. But that wasn't an option for me. <laughs> my my boss at my first company is also a, a really kind of really important mentor for me. And I remember sitting down with him earlier in the year, and it was while we were going through the pivot and we sat down for coffee and you could see in my face that I was a little bit worried because normally I'll turn up to these coffees really kind of upbeat, jolly, ready to ready to go. And he was asking me what's up and I, and I said to him, I was like, we have one shot and I think there's something here. I really believe there's something here. But if there's not, I don't know what we do. <laughs> and It's a pretty big moment. Yeah. And, and he helped put things in perspective. He said, how much runway do you have? I said, seven months. And he turned around to me. He said, I'm speaking to companies with two weeks of runway. So he said, you just need to like put your head down and keep pushing forward and either you land or you don't. And it was that moment where I kind of made the decision. I'm just putting my head down. I'm not going to come up for air until either this goes belly up or you raise again. There's no middle ground. I'm going to leave no stone unturned. I'm going to knock knock on the knock down the doors of retailers and make sure this thing works. And it was challenging. I had a I had a team that that had kind of the same doubt that I had, but I couldn't show the doubt. I kind of looked at myself as the like the air hostess on on an airplane. It's like if they're still serving snacks, everything's good. So I had to. It didn't matter how nervous I was. I couldn't let that show to the team. And I had to keep seven people motivated, moving in the same direction on something that might not actually work. And that was, I guess, the the big thing. But what it allowed for was it showed me where people's strengths are in my team. And I'm big on focusing on people's strengths. But in the time when, when times are tough, you can see real qualities shine through. And it helped me kind of work out when there's when there's a problem who steps up who who needs a bit more of a push who's going to come up with ideas it was funny we were in my parent literally in the basement and there was one day of torrential downpour and our office flooded <laughs> and we were probably in like we just very quickly i mean i never realized how quick flash flooding flooding is and it was quick and before we knew it we were in kind of shin to knee deep water and i could see straight away everyone on the team kind of kick into gear and work, do what they need to do in order to um, in order to see us through the problem. And it was the same thing that, that happened when we needed to pivot. Um, 
I grew up playing a lot of sport, specifically rugby. And every year that I played rugby, I had a season ending injury. And every year that I had a season ending injury, I had two options. Option one was to throw in the towel. And option two was to get whatever surgery it was that I needed, rehab myself and get ready for the following year. And we go all over again. And it, I'd say it was those injuries that best prepared me for the setbacks because the, every setback is just an injury. Some are more significant than others, but it's all just something that I just need to rehab back from. And it just depends on how badly I want it as to whether or not I'll, I'll keep pushing and, and keep chasing it. Yeah, it really is that hunger, isn't it? That internal drive and wanting to do the best, not just for your team. I think that I can see that that is your number one priority, but also knowing that you could change the retail environment for the longer term and for the better. 100%, 100%. I could could see there was something here and I wasn't ready to give up on it. I mean, if you're trying to build muscle, the way you build muscle is through micro tears. Micro tear and muscle builds on top of that. And this process for us as a team going back to square one was a tear and it was something, it was muscle that we had to build on top of it. And what it ended up doing was it made us stronger as a team once we did get through it. And what it has shown me is that there's going to be a million setbacks in this journey. Nick always used to talk about it after the Wiffio moments, the we're fucked, it's over moments. <laughs> and I've definitely felt that on this journey. And there's going to be more of them in this journey. It's, this isn't this it isn't the first. It's not going to be the last. But what happened over the last couple over the, the these months where we had, where we were pivoting was it created muscle memory. And now anytime there is something that needs to be worked through, we know how to kick into gear and we know how to how to um, account for it and optimize each other's strengths for who can really jump in in all those scenarios and find the right solutions as well as a united team exactly i'm really big i get everyone in my team to do their strengths test i always want to make sure i know everyone's strengths in the team how to get the most out of each other Um, i use the analogy for the team um, there's an, an analogy of kind of heaven versus hell and in uh in hell there's this big long dining room table full of the best food in the world and everyone's got forks that are too long to to actually feed themselves um and then in heaven there's a long dining room table with the best food and also those same long forks but the only difference is that in heaven everyone's feeding each other whereas in hell they're trying to feed themselves And that's kind of the mentality that I have is that if everyone is working towards each other's strengths, then every, if everyone's focused on getting the most out of each other, then we're going to have the best possible team. Um, because everyone has not only that self-awareness of what they, of of how to get the most out of themselves, but they also know who in the team to go to for what they know, who's good at this, who's good at that. Um, and when there's different things that need to be done, we know who it is that's going to be the best person to help us through it. Yeah, I think that's an incredible way to be able to showcase that as an analogy. And I have to, I do have to put my afterpay hat on from from that moment. That really was a key contributor to that scaling side 100%. of the business in exactly what happened. It was truly believing in each other, trusting each other, catching each other when you fell, 
and pushing each other forward in zones that a lot of people wouldn't go because of the discomfort, because of the risk. Exactly. And you've been able to, you know, continue that on into your new journey as well, which clearly shows the impact that you're bringing that to businesses as yeah. well. And that's just phenomenal. Yeah. You have to have innate trust in each other. Again, in, in rugby, if you don't trust the person next to you to make the tackle and therefore you think you have to come and help them, then it leaves you exposed for someone to kind of score outside you. And it's the exact same thing. You ha- We have to have trust in each other that everyone's capable of doing their job and that they're going to execute on what they need to execute on without micromanaging or overlooking their shoulders or trying to step in too much. Because if we try and do that, it again, it exposes us to, to downfall. Yeah. Very, very powerful, Simon. I'm now going to just continue moving the conversation more into that retail landscape and would really love to discuss the retail landscape and the intersection of retail and technology. I think you've already looked at some of that, but really what do you feel are some of the key challenges that retail really is faced with today? And what do these leaders that are driving these retail businesses for the next you know, decade ahead of us have to think about in their strategies over the next three to five years? Yeah, I would say for a number of years, there was a big shift towards digital. People, I think, predicted and and saw what they thought was going to be the death of brick and mortar retail. You had retailers closing their stores, going to pure play, to be pure play only. And it was possible. You could do it. Facebook was early. AdWords was early enough that it was cheap. And you could have a, a successful digital only strategy. And then the and then iOS changed, cookies changed on Google, and suddenly the cost of acquisition through a digital only strategy got a lot more expensive. And having a digital only strategy became much more challenging. Then COVID hit. And people thought that COVID was the final nail in the coffin for brick and mortar. But ironically, COVID was the trigger or the catalyst for the resurgence of brick and mortar because people realized how much they craved that interpersonal relationship. And we bounced out of COVID, doors opened up, we moved out of lockdown. And that craving for interpersonal relationship and connection compounded with the rising of digital acquisition costs highlighted the importance of a physical presence because that physical presence is the opportunity to have potentially your customers undivided attention where the only thing that's in front of them is your brand. They're not scrolling on a phone where at any point in time they can get an Instagram notification or a WhatsApp message. They're actually in your store and a lot of people don't actually want to use their phone in store. They want to keep it in their pocket. So it's a couple minutes where you potentially are the only thing that's important to your customer for that moment in time. And what's becoming more important is how important brand is. It's not just a channel, it's actually the brand itself. And that offline store is the way that you portray what kind of brand you are. And that's why we're seeing a lot of brands move towards more experiential stores. We're seeing, I mean, Vans opened a store with a skating rink. I think it was... Canada Goose, I think it was. I think that's the the jacket. The the maybe I've gotten it wrong, but they had like a minus twenty degree fitting room, so you could test out their their winter wear. You've got 
brands that are creating these these different ways to interact with their customers to make the customers want to come into the store because they're going to get an experience that they wouldn't otherwise be able to get. And some brands are doing it bigger, some are smaller, some you might get a cup of coffee, maybe you get a champagne, maybe. Uh, but it's about it's that really unique experience that the brand is able to give in store. I think Samsung created an experience where they didn't actually sell anything. There was nothing to buy in the store. and But what it did was it created a place for customers to come and visit and, and customers to hang out. And it's not about closing the purchase at that point in time. It's about driving that brand affinity. So when the moment comes where you're deciding on a mobile phone to purchase, that you're going to go with Samsung. So that's a learning experience and it really is the touch and the sound and the smell and all the senses that you go on when you're actually in that in-store environment. Exactly. Um, one of the um, one of the exercises I ran for Venroy when I was um, working with them was understanding what the impact was of a store on the wider area from an e-com perspective. And what I was able to show them for every store that they opened, not only was there obviously the revenue growth in the store, but there was a revenue growth in the surrounding area from an e-com perspective because there was a natural flow-on effect. One of the one of the insights, I think we found it at Afterpay, but every retailer I've helped, I've found the same data point at the retailer is the value of an omni-channel customer. And for a lot of brands that I've worked with, I've found that an in-store-only customer can be up to double as value valuable as an online-only customer. And an omni-channel customer can be up to twice as valuable as an in-store-only customer. So an omni-channel customer can be four times as valuable as an online-only customer. So it shows what the power of that store does because if you have a customer that's shopping both online and offline, that customer sees the brand as a brand. It's not just a channel. It's not just an, an avenue to purchase. It's actually brand affinity. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I constantly do is try to encourage retailers to think about their their brands holistically and retailers still like majority of retailers have a separate stores teams to stores teams to e-com team different competing kpis different teams they don't have much overlap with each other you have retail teams resisting click and collect because they see that as a sale that they should have gotten that's going to the e-com team when actually that's someone now coming into their store that they could upsell um, and that they can actually get back in for a future purchase so it's it's starting to move the needle in terms of the overlap between online and offline. And I guess that's the space that Flagship is trying to play. Okay. We're, we're really trying to blur the lines between online and offline and start to move towards a digital in-store experience, a digital in-store, I guess, management platform so that retailers can look at their stores in the same way they would an e-com site and so that you can start to apply some of the same learnings that you would from an e-com perspective into brick and mortar. And again, it's just, I guess it's just the way that I've always operated. I look through data. I always say when I was running ice jewelry that I never knew the first thing about jewelry. I, I could have been selling anything, but I just knew how to read data to put the right product in front of the right person at the right time. And again, that's what we're that's what we're looking to, to try to do. It's how do we how do we enable retailers to look at data to optimize placement to optimize flow um, to make sure that every store is maximized to its full potential and that every store very directly speaks to that area and that demographic 
I mean, you can have a customer in Sydney, you can have a customer in Perth, you can have a customer on the West Coast of America, and they're all, they can all be very different people. Um, but treating each store individually is very challenging in the current way that retailers operate. So what okay. we're looking to try and do is trying to give retailers the tools and the ability to really hone in on each store and for all intents and purposes, treat it like it's its own store, its own brand and give retailers that control so that the store can speak to that specific demographic in their own unique way. Yeah. And then the store in New York can speak to their customers in their own unique way. And a store in Nebraska can speak to their own store in their own unique way. And a store in regional Australia can speak to their customer in their own unique way. And that's really what we're looking to try and do. It's about, it's, it's that brand, but it's trying to personalize that brand towards that customer profile. Right. And I think that leads very much into your product or service and that importance of data I think a key extract from this podcast for all the national sales managers out there in retail, take that five minutes to really write down some key questions and go sit with your data and finance team to be able to really dive into that. Because if you can ask the right questions, you can definitely have an impact on turning the sales around within these store environments. I want to take a moment to introduce you to Naturally Gloom-Free, where lifestyle meets quality. Naturally Gloom-Free is a boutique bakery committed to crafting exceptional gloom-free products that are produced with high-quality natural ingredients and free from all additives and preservatives. When you are seeking to transform your menu or source a premium gloom-free product, Naturally Gloom-Free invites you to connect with them via their website, naturallygloomfree.com.au. On that note, I think it's a great opportunity now to really dive into Flagship's product that you are launching to market. You have launched to market. We have launched, yeah. And you're now ready to, to really start <laughs> driving, you know, that next stage of growth for Flagship. So what is this product and service that you have on the market? Yeah, so our first solution, I, I don't think it will be our last solution, but our first solution is a digital visual merchandising platform. So the way this was built was we just spoke to retailers. I'd say one of my biggest strengths is pattern recognition. So I can speak to a lot of people and identify the consistencies that I hear from those people. So my product manager and I, for three weeks straight, we'd meet with a retailer and just back to back in a day. And we'd come out of a meeting and I turned around to him and I was like, there's something here in the visual merchandising space. I want you to focus on that for the next retailer. And then found that it was a problem and then found it was a problem and found it was a problem. And then what we would start to do is we'd start to prototype a solution. And then with the next retailer show them the prototype, work their feedback in. Next retailer, work their feedback in. And it got to the point where the final retailers we were speaking to, we actually got commercials agreed to before we'd even built the product because we listened to our customers and they essentially built the product for us. So you had a very high demand in the market. Can I ask what were some of those pain points that the retailers were advising you of at that point? So what I've come to learn about visual merchandising in retail is that there haven't been a lot of efficiencies, innovations, technology for visual merchandising. 
And the reason being is that there are a lot of nuances in visual merchandising. And if you don't understand those nuances, you can't solve for it. And we, the only reason why we've been able to solve for it is because our retailers basically told us what we, what we needed to do. Um, and because there have been no technologies or efficiencies, it's meant that as a store network grows and as a store count grows, the only way that you can handle that from a visual merchandising perspective is by throwing more people at it. As a store network grows, you grow, you grow the team. And it, for a long time, it's just been accepted that you just grow the visual merchandising team in line with how many stores you have. And the way visual merchandising has been done to date, and, and I speak to retailers with 3,000 stores in America, I speak to retailers with five stores in Australia, and they do it the exact same way, where for the most part, they'll have a person or a team of people at head office whose responsibility is to put together a PDF directive. It can take them days to put that together. They'll send that out to all the stores. Um, they'll either have field teams going out to those stores to either execute or validate that it's been done effectively, or there'll be a wave of photos that come back to head office through all different channels. Some stores will email, some will WhatsApp, um, some will use FaceTime. And there's just a lot of processes that exist. And that inconsistency, I would say, in that scenario as well, um, happening across, you know, all the regionals going out to the stores, the endless travel and logistics that goes behind that, but definitely the inconsistency of what's actually presented to the consumer. Exactly. There was a brand that we were speaking to the other day who, who's um, about to kind of come on with us. And part of like the exercise that they did themselves was they decided they're going to pick a random store that they haven't gone into for a long time and they're just going to step footed. And she said she walked out of that store and she was mortified at how the store looked. Um, and that's what we're looking to solve for. I mean, so the way, so what we, what we do is we created basically a digital representation of the store in the form of a, of a floor plan and laying out the store is as simple as dragging and drop. So you can place product where you want it in the stores, the store gets a very clear directive. They get their own floor plan. It's not a generic PDF guide that they're trying to translate to their store. They actually get a tailored guide directive for their store. Um, they know exactly what to do. And then what they'll do is they'll still take photos, but they'll attach the photos back to a specific fixture. So a fixture is basically a rack. It's a table. It's a window. It's a mannequin. It's basically anywhere where product is housed. Um, and then head office now gets very structured photos that they can now review. And what it means is sometimes in visual merchandising, it's not necessarily the product placement. Sometimes it's the nuances of the way you want the product laid out. Sometimes you want the collar popped or the sleeve rolled, or you want a scarf a certain way, you want shoes pointing a certain way. Um, and what the platform allows for is the ability to really hone in on those little micro adjustments that the brand wants from a brand positioning perspective. So Venroy have got a store in Capri in Italy. They've got a store in Montauk in New York and their office is in Paddington in Sydney. And they've got no management in Italy. They've got no management in New York, yet they have full control of those stores from Australia. And the Italy staff thought that the mannequin needed a headscarf. And the visual merchandise said, no, can you please remove that? And just from the photos, she had the control to make sure that there was that global brand alignment. So that's essentially the way the platform works. But what happens is through the placement of products throughout the store network is we can now map the location of a product through to sales. And we can tell retailers based on where you've placed a product in a store, how is that product performing? So we can tell retailers across their entire store network 
how much revenue is coming from each part of the store, how much revenue and how much revenue is each product contributing towards that part of the store. So across the entire store network, we can say how much revenue is coming from your front window, from your front table, from your rack, from your priority one fixture, from your priority four fixture, what product should be in the front window, what product shouldn't be in the front window. And maybe in a hundred stores, what's on the mannequin in the front window is working for 95 of those stores. But maybe there's five where that's actually not working and that style shouldn't be in the front window and it should be replaced with something else. So it's really starting to turn visual merchandising into that kind of per store um, view. Very, very powerful. That would have a significant impact, I'm assuming, moving forward on the trade meeting that (laughs) happens in the retailers of really the collaboration sitting in head office so that they can actually be the supporting team equipping these frontline teams out in the stores to be able to put their best foot forward. The ability for the buyers to partner with the merch planners and communicate directly to get an impact within minutes. Exactly. What we're seeing is that retailers are actually actually pulling up our platform in these trade meetings so they can see a style's not working or a store's not working and they can very quickly jump in and see for this one store, what is it about that store? They have the photos, they have the product placement, and they can make that change in that meeting just for that one store. Um, And to your point, what we want is we want to increase the collaboration that exists between the merch, the the visual merchandiser and the merch planner, and between the buyer and the planner, and between the designer and the visual merchandiser, where again, for a long time, they've sit siloed from one another And the only interaction that a lot of them will have is in this trade meeting. And what we want is we want for that ongoing collaboration, not just once a week, but on an ongoing basis where you can have, I mean, Nadia Lotta, the Age Athletica CEO, has got login to the platform because she wants to be able to jump in at any point in time and see how every store looks. And she can now feed some some requests or recommendations through or she can say, I mean, she said she, in the middle of winter, she walked into one of her stores and there was a pencil skirt in the, in the, in the front window. And she's like, it's the middle of winter. This isn't going to, this isn't going to sell. It was like a, a, a slip dress next to a, a sweater. Um, and it, it's being able to have that visibility to say, hey, this, like, this has been missed or this store needs to be updated. Um, and I mean, I was speaking to another retailer who was just overloaded with stock to the point where three out of four fitting rooms were loaded with product that hadn't been able to be put onto the shelves yet. So a lot of our retailers would actually get photos requested from the fitting room, from back of the house, from the pods, from the front window, um, because it means you can't hide. You can't you can't hide product in your fitting room because there's you're going to get the photos back and you're going to actually see that that it's there. And it also, I mean, one of our retailers, for one of the directives that got rolled out to one of just one of their stores, I think out of 10 fixtures, eight got rejected. So rejected basically means there's a tweak that needs to be made and maybe that store had a little bit of trouble executing on the directive that was provided. But now head office knows, okay, we need to send someone to that store to give them a bit more handholding because maybe they're not as kind of proficient from a visual merchandising perspective. But these two stores, every time we, we launch a directive, they get to full compliance straight away within a couple of hours of, of rolling out. So we know that we can leave them be because they've got everything under control. So it really kind of hones in and, and creates, I guess, a, a more targeted list for retailers rather than just doing this field vision merchandiser. They've got a list, they're going to one a day, 
Um, and maybe that store doesn't need it, but I'm still going to go to that store because I actually don't know how it looks. And I think the additional value outside of the visual merchandising, the training and the learning and development side that this is now going to be able to go across the whole, you know, internal head office as well as all of the store teams is a big shift in that space too because to get feedback very quickly and be able to be provided with coaching remotely on what is actually happening in those individual stores is a game changer in the market. 100%. Um, I mean, if you're getting photos back from all the stores and you're seeing that every store is folding an item in the wrong way, then you can record a video about how to fold that item and send it out to the stores or upload it to the platform so that everyone has that training video, training material on how they need to fold this style. So it really, again, helps um, stores in terms of presentation and layout. It helps from a from a um, sales training perspective. So if you see that two items are performing really well together in a lot of stores, you can feed that through as messaging to the source teams. So when they're merchandised, you can say, hey, just so you know, this style and this style are selling really well together. So if someone takes into this takes this into a fitting room, take this one in or offer this as, as an upsell as well. Yeah, excellent. So if a retailer does want to get in contact with you, we will definitely put this in our notes at the end of the, the podcast, but how do they reach your team or yourself? Either through our website, flagship.ai, or email my, myself, Simon, at flagship.ai. Yeah, always happy to chat. And even if it's not for the not for the purpose of using flagship, I always love speaking retail I love speaking digital retail. I just always want to keep my finger on the pulse. I want to know what's happening in retail. What are the challenges of retail? I'd say one of my biggest strengths is, and again, this is why Nick and I work so well together, is being able to see a problem and ideate a solution. And then once I have the solution, then I can work out all the steps that are required in order to get me from A to B. So I'm speaking to retailers and they're saying we're having problems in our warehousing and our fulfillment and our stock and our marketing and this and that. And that's kind of where I want to get to is I sit down with everyone in retail and start to understand what are everyone's challenges that they're facing. And again, it comes back to the whole thing that we're not, I'm not here chasing revenue. I'm here trying to make the lives of retailers better. And I wholeheartedly believe that if, I do things right, if I treat our retailers right, if I listen to them and I build a product that actually fundamentally makes their lives better, that everything else will fall into place. Incredible, Simon. You should be so exceptionally (laughs) proud of that value proposition that you have just positioned out there in the market. (laughs) I I think, you know, personally being a retailer for the last 20 years and same as you, want to know all the pain points, the highs and lows of retail, it is all about connection. It's all about succession planning. It's all about developing these incredible leaders to be able to have the ability to have someone like yourself and your team be an enabler for these businesses to be able to grow and continue to flourish in the market is really the future of retail. Um, that is just phenomenal. So thank you for for sharing all of that side. I do want to dive into some exciting news because it was, I think, what was it, a week ago that you had some very big news to share across the LinkedIn platform and that is that you have received your seed funding uh, to be able to go into that growth stage for flagship. What does this mean to you? Um, I mean, again, it, like being in this office, it shows that we're growing up. 
our, our focus at the moment is just making sure the product does everything we need it to. We need to make sure that it does solve for all the problems that, and that any blind spots are solved for and that there aren't any gaps in the product. So right now we're really focusing on beefing out our, our product and our engineering team um, because, I mean, my engineering team is full of wizards but wizards have limited time in the week and we need to, and we need to build as much as we possibly can. So our focus at the moment is really kind of growing out the team. We're also starting to look at branching out into the US. So we've made our first hire over there. And again, what we've seen is that the challenges facing retailers here are the same as the challenges facing retailers over there. So starting to, to take the product over there and starting to, I guess, help retailers over there. Yeah, that that's I guess the 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 key. We I again I I talk about a lot of like the I guess privileges or fortunes that I've had, and one of the key fortunes that I've had is the ability to pick the brain of Van Eisen kind of on on call. And one of the one of the big pieces of advice that he gave me early on was that if you wanted if you want to win, you have to exist. And there's no point in having the best product in the world. There's no point in having the best yeah, the best solution in the world if you can't afford to keep the lights on. So yes, this is the opportunity for us to grow the team and grow the product and try and, and scale. But for me, it also just means that for the next couple of years, we can continue to exist without needing to look over our shoulders about the the burn or, or keep looking at looking at the bank account. So from a personal perspective, that that's the big kind of relief for me. Yeah, you've got that forward plan and now you can really dive into it exactly. as well. And on that, you're going to be heading over to the US pretty yeah, soon. I am. So <laughs> that that itself is going to be pretty daunting. Picking up my wife, my two daughters and heading over there. I, I think the the daycare landscape over there alone is very different. My understanding is that daycare finishes up at midday. So my wife losing five hours a day of daycare is gonna is a is a tough ask. So yeah, my my obviously looking to get over there. My priority is is setting up as much of a of a support system for my family as quickly as possible, but also just doing doing what, what we're doing here and just speaking to retailers. I know the retail landscape is different there and there's different nuances there. And we want to understand those nuances as quickly as possible to make sure that everything that is in the product makes sense for the US market as well. Yeah, and the size of the store footprints is, is just huge. Well, yeah, what I found over there is once a retailer gets to 20 to 30 stores, they very quickly go to 100 stores. <laughs> it's just such a big market that once you see that your product works in the market, there's so many places that you can you can open. I mean, I think the the population size of California alone, I think is 50% greater than the whole of Australia. So you could have a business just focused on California and you could have a very successful business. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, it's a very exciting time for yourself and Romy to be heading over to the US and I'm sure she's going to be thrilled with the adventure (laughs) that lies ahead because I think it's going to be a pretty full-on adventure. Now, I am going to ask you about the challenges and we spoke to some, but personally for yourself in behind the scenes, having a startup, it is no easy feat. There are a lot of hard days. There are a lot of days you question your why, a lot of days you question your vision, a lot of days you question your own mind. What 
do you like what happens for Simon behind the scenes of all this? Do you have an inner circle? Do you have a, a daily routine? But how do you stay strong as a leader and show up every day as the best version of yourself? Yeah, there've definitely been there, there are a lot of personal sacrifices that you need to make in order to start a business. I mean, I in back in the ice days, there'd be days where I was I just couldn't work out I, I couldn't find the solution and i felt like we were hemorrhaging money and i couldn't find the source of it and i couldn't work out how to fix it and i just had to pick up jump in the car head home and on the way home i'd call my wife my parents and i'd say meet me at home in, in half an hour and i would just lie on the floor in in my apartment and just say i i don't know i don't know what to do and they, I would say these are the problems and then we'd talk through the problems and I'd pick myself back up and get back on the horse and work out what to do. There are a lot of those moments. There'd be times I've got a WhatsApp group with my mates and I periodically I'd say, don't start a business, just work for someone else, take a regular salary. And if that business goes barely up, you can go take a salary from someone else and there's no impact on you whatsoever. So there are a lot of those moments where you just think it would have been so much easier if I just took a day job. And especially having... A family. I think I underestimated the the workload of a family as well. And yeah, the the in order to be, I guess, the dad that I want to be, there are even more personal sacrifices because there's not enough time in in the week in order to be to be a dad and run a business and have a social life. So I basically have to pick two, and I the social life is what is what I forego, and I take it where I can get it but my focus is my family and and my business. I the way that the way that I work, I'm very introverted. I'd say I'm an extroverted introvert. I can step up when I need to, but I I need the quiet time. I need to recharge my batteries. And any time that I find where I've kind of reached that boiling point is when I haven't had that chance to recharge the batteries. So I'd say for me, it's really understanding myself and and what I need in order to keep going. And I'd say for anyone else, it's working what that is, working out what that is, and it can be different for everyone. For me, I just need my quiet space, no one around me, just switching my brain off. And my form of switching my brain off is just video games. And it's just something, I, I'm a very competitive person and being competitive isn't wanting to win everything. Being competitive is putting yourself in as many situations as possible where you know you're going to win. It's quite quite funny. I was reading a book about it and playing a video game where I know that I've got a high likelihood of winning, it just gives me those little endorphin, endorphin hits. It recharges the batteries. And what I found is when I don't get that, that hour or two hours a week of just quiet time and I don't recharge the batteries, then I roll into the next week and I'm running on empty and I'm depleting my batteries on batteries that are already empty. So for me, it's kind of having that awareness and, and also making sure my wife has the awareness of when I'm at that breaking point, when I need that time and trying to work that into, into the routine so that I can be the dad that I want to be and that I can run the business and also be the husband that I want to be. So yeah, it's, I think it's just about communication. I saw a video pop up on, on Instagram the other day and the way she framed it was like was so good and she said that her and her husband always want to collectively be at a score of 100 and 
they said like one might be at 80 and one might be at 20. It's like, okay, between the two of them, they've got enough. And then someone might walk in and say, I'm at a five. And they might say, that's okay, I'm at 100, so I can take your load. And then when both are at a 20 and you're not at 100, that's when you need to call in the troops, you need to call in the parents or the help or something like that. And it's about having that, again, that dialogue, that communication, that awareness. There are times my wife will say, like, today's been a hard day, and I'll say, that's fine, my batteries are full, I can take the load on when I get home. That's not to say that things don't blow up, they definitely do, but it's about knowing how to get through it's about knowing what what triggers each other what helps de-stress each other and again working towards each other's strengths i love that that is simple it's effective and it's a tool i think that everyone would be able to implement into their own lives it, it is a great way of reflecting and having that level of self-awareness as well as being supportive for not just your partner but even your inner circle around you yeah as well yeah i I have a big focus on on mental health i think unintentionally i i like to consider myself a happy person and i know that there's a lot of a lot of personal struggles that exist in the world and i guess i always try and reflect on on why it is that I feel like I have the tools to be able to handle this and other people might not. And I ended up creating like a list of my life hacks. And it's just the personal ways that I live my life. Um, and one of the things that I realized was the emphasis that I put on on mental health. And I, I again, unapologetically always prioritize my own mental health over anything. So I've got social arrangements and I'm not filling up to it. I, I won't. I'll take the time in order to recharge. I won't push through. But I also make sure that whoever those social arrangements are with are aware that it's because I've got that mental fatigue and I need to recover. I um I, I kind of I like I treat mental health the same way or mental fatigue the same way you would physical fatigue. If you have a hamstring tear, you're not going to go out for a run. But there's this, almost this expectation where just because I'm mentally fatigued or I've got this mental I'm going through a breakup or work is hard or I'm in a fight with my partner that there's, there's this expectation that you just have to put on a happy face and push through it. And that's not the way that I work. The way that I work is I've got this problem. This is how I feel. I'm going to embrace how I feel just because I feel upset, sad, frustrated. That's not a bad emotion that I need to suppress. It's I need to embrace it. I need to understand why I feel it. And once I know why I feel it, then I can address why I feel it. So yeah, a big thing is is understanding both mental fatigue and and physical fatigue and using them in, in like simultaneously. Every one I, I and had to kind of explain that to my wife that I've got ment I've got physical recovery, which is sleep, which is rest, but there's also that mental recovery, which is switching off, playing video games, watching watching sport, whatever it is. Um, and I need both. And if I if I'm short on one that's when I crumble and I'll fall apart. That self-awareness is, yeah, it's a game changer for you and to be able to show up as the best version of yourself every day. I think there's some incredible tips of advice for a lot of people. We're going to have to put a lot of links in this showcase uh, to be able to, you know, share that. I think there's going to be a lot of people reaching out wanting to know some more information, but that is a real journey that you've gone on personally yep. to be able to stand as you are today and and have that strength and being 
that transparent with the people around you is probably the key missing step a lot of people do forget about is actually telling people having a personal strategy and being able to go through the steps that you go through the questions that you ask yourself and the honesty that you portray back is you know well it is a, a strategy that we all need to be able to introduce into our lives as well so i think there's some great foundations there that we can all take on yeah. as well one day I, I keep adding to my list i think i'm at 100 now one day i'll i'll properly package it up and offer it out to people but every every week there's something new that i'm adding and especially since being a new dad there have been more and more things that, have, that i've added in it's going to permanently evolve. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And some things I, I read over things and some things I realise I got wrong mm. and I'll take them off. And it, it's again, it's it's having that awareness that that sometimes I'll, I will get things wrong and that's okay as long as I don't get things wrong in, in a way that is going to cause permanent damage or something that, that can't be recovered from. But mistakes are normal. That's Re- right. Failure is normal. Rejection is normal. I mean, before starting flagship there were like 10 other businesses that i tried along the way that didn't really get off the ground and i saw that there were no legs i mean even nick had a whole lot of things on the side that didn't work just because one thing doesn't work it doesn't mean that nothing is going to work there is definitely every failure is a lesson like i i don't care about mistakes i don't care about errors i don't like if someone is genuinely trying their best and they make a mistake i could not care less I don't want people to make the same mistakes over and over again. I want, if they make the mistake, to learn from it and and to use that as knowledge for next time. But the only way, like I, I, a lot of the guys in the team, sometimes I'll see that someone's heading in the wrong direction, but I know that the outcome of that direction isn't going to be too detrimental. So I let them keep going in that direction because I can tell them what they need to do or I can let them discover it for themselves and experience it for themselves and they know for next time what they need to do differently. So it's always, I've always kind of got tabs on everyone and make sure that everyone. You're providing psychological safety in exactly. the workplace. They know that they can fail forward. They know that they're going to come in here, one version of themselves and leave one day a much stronger version yeah. of themselves because they've had that environment that they feel safe. They've got that trust. They've got that respect and they're able to then be able to share that out to all of your wonderful customers that are going to be joining the flagship journey. Yeah, I mean, and they've had to share some hard truths with me about things that, I mean, coming into to flagship, I mean, I was one, one and a half team. I had my warehouse manager who listened to what, who just did what I said. I had my mum who just did what I said. And now I'm coming into a bigger team. And, and what I've learned is that everyone else works differently to how I used to work before. So I've also had to learn the differences that I've had to incorporate into the way that I work and the way that I approach things in order to make sure that they get the most out of their job. So, and yeah, they've had to have some, have to have had to have some hard truths with me um, about things that I'm doing that aren't working for them. And again, um, a, a big thing for me is, is self-awareness. And I feel like if you have self-awareness, you can change on a dime. You, I think the, the big thing is not getting trapped into the way that people think you are. I think um, one of the things with my daughter is, I feel like if you if you keep saying to um, if you keep saying, "Oh, you're so shy," or "You're annoying," or whatever it is, they're going to hear it and they're going to believe it. And there's a lot of that that 
I guess, positive reinforcement. And if you say you're strong, you're brave, you're smart, then they own it and, and that manifests. I agree completely with you on that sense. Simon, I like to ask each guest on the show for a few words of wisdom that we can pass on to the aspiring leaders, founders of tomorrow. What invaluable lesson have you gained that you would like to share? Um, There's a few. I hope I can share a few. Um, The first is understand your strengths and keep trying to work to your strengths. I think there's this inherent misunderstanding that people need to work to their strengths and work on their weaknesses. And I think you work to your strengths, but you manage your weaknesses. There are going to be things that I believe that if you work towards your strengths and you keep doing things that you're good at, then your output is naturally going to be greater than what it would be if you're working on something that you're not in, that you don't enjoy. Because what you're good at is often things that you enjoy. It comes naturally to you. It's easy to um, to work on it. And if there's something that is a weakness and you don't enjoy doing it, then you procrastinate, you can down the road, it takes you longer to do it. So I have built a team around me of people that I know that are good at things that I'm not good at. So it's not about saying I'm not good at it, I need to get good at it. It's saying I'm not good at it, I need to find people who are good at it. So that's probably number one. Number two is not again not being trapped by what people think and not being trapped by the expectation that parents have or society has or friends have and really staying true to yourself and knowing what you want as a person and knowing what makes you happy and don't kind of budge on that because personal happiness is number one most important and then the third thing is that you can't look forward and see success success is retrospective so you can't say, I know this is going to happen in two years' time. You can't, as a sporting player, you can't say, I know I'm going to win a premiership. Or as a business owner, I know I'm going to exit my company or it's going to be acquired and it's going to be successful. You can't know that. So all you can do is trust that you're heading in the right direction and that things are going to work out in the end. My wife and I have a saying that everything works out in the end and if it hasn't worked out, then it's not the end. Um, and it's that same mentality like you just keep heading in the direction and you just have to trust your gut that you're heading in the right direction. Love all of those. Well, we have absolutely inspired the audience that's going to be listening to this. You have definitely got to write that playbook once you've got some more time, I have to say, uh, but they are very powerful messages to pass on to our next generation of leaders. Well, Simon, it has been an absolute pleasure having you join me on Leadership Odyssey's podcast. Your insights have been so fruitful. Uh, They really have illuminated the path for the future of retail and showing us that by embracing innovation, adaptability and a customer-first approach, we can navigate the ever-changing landscape and create a brighter, more prosperous opportunities for retailers everywhere. We truly wish you all the best on your journey. You are going to have to stay in contact. We are going to need milestone steps along the way and uh, get you back on this podcast sooner rather than later. So thank you. Thanks so much for having me. This was great. Thank you for joining us on this incredible odyssey. Until next time, lead with courage, lead with heart, and keep exploring the remarkable world of leadership. Enjoyed the journey? Hit the subscribe button, 
rate us and leave a review if our stories ignited your leadership spirit. Your feedback fuels our odyssey 